Well, friends, we continue uh, with our neighborhood series this week. Last week, Pastor Emily reminded us that where we live is no accident, that as God's covenant people, we are called, like Israel, to do neighboring differently. We're not to covet people's things and take them from them. We don't hoard extra things that may just go rotten. We don't tell lies about our neighbors to others. We speak the truth. And she mentioned that this will make us peculiar, that this kind of living as a neighbor stands out, is different than those who do not follow God. And she reminded us that it's so important that the majority of the Ten Commandments talk about neighboring. She also encouraged us to grab one of these magnets that we have in the back and fill out who's in our neighborhood, which is really cool. My children have been coloring on it all week um, on our refrigerator, so our neighbors need to be continually refreshed on this. Um, (laughs) But this week, we're asking God for guidance about what to do when things are not going well with our neighbors. There are times when there is trouble in our neighborhoods. What are we called to do in these times? And I think our text this morning has one singular and clear answer to this question. So will you pray with me? God of peace, God of hope, God of light, as we hear your word this morning, May your peace rest our anxieties. May your hope lift our heads. And may your light, which you give freely to all, shine in the places in our hearts that try to stay hidden in the dark. Amen. So I want to start by giving you some context to the passage that we're about to read. Genesis 12 is the beginning of a new story in the book. And there's no doubt that in the construction of Genesis, a story shift is intended between Genesis 11.32, where we find the genealogy of Abraham, and Genesis 12.1, where we find ourselves this morning. It's perhaps one of the most important structural shifts in the Old Testament, and certainly in Genesis, because it distinguishes between the history of humankind, we have the story of the flood and the Tower of Babel, and the history of Israel or between the history of the curse and the history of the blessing. And with that, let us read our text. This is Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. This is the word of the Lord. In this powerful scene, God begins a new story through the person of Abram. And at the end of this moment where God commissions Abram to go and be a blessing, he clarifies fully what he means by that. God says to him at the end of the next verse, In you, Abram. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the Hebrew word here for blessing translates to bringing something to flourishing. A dynamic blessing. 
this passage is so important that the Apostle Paul references it in the New Testament as the first gospel, the good news, that being God's covenant people from Abraham through history and to this very day and to this very room full of us, our call is to be a blessing to others, to bring others to flourish. And that means blessing has to be a lens through which we see our world, and especially those in close proximity to us, especially our neighbors. But what is it about being a child of God that could possibly bring flourishing and blessing to those around us? So first, the Christian blesses their neighbors by faithfully following God's laws and God's decrees. And we have a beautiful summary of those laws and decrees from Jesus himself. In Matthew 22, the experts in all the laws come straight to Jesus and just ask, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied with this, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And Jesus continued. He said, there's a second like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, the whole of the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. When we follow this law of love, we embody our image as God's covenant people to those who are around us. It's as if the Christian is to be the bridge between God and this world that allows God's love to cross over and spill into the people's lives around us. Scripture tells us that when we're patient with our neighbors, they'll be blessed. It tells us that when we're kind to our neighbors, they will be blessed. Scripture tells us that when we don't get jealous, or boastful, or proud, then we're, when we're not rude to our neighbors, they'll be blessed. That when we forgive our neighbors and don't hold their mistakes against them, that they will flourish. That when we tell the truth to our neighbors, they will be blessed. That we, we encourage and support our neighbors, they will flourish. And finally, that when we love our neighbors all the way through their most difficult storms, they will be blessed because these are the ways that love looks like in Scripture and in our world. It is the way that God's love looks. This way of living out our faith in our neighborhoods does require some things to happen. First, the thing is we have to know our neighbors to love them this way. And we have to open our lives to them in such a way that this kind of love is required. This feels risky to me. <laughs> I just moved into a new neighborhood. I don't know all my neighbors yet. Do I really want to get to know them so well that we could get into a conflict where I have to forgive them for something or worse, they have to forgive me for something? Do I want to know my neighbor so well that if I don't say hi when I see them, it could be taken as rude. Do I really want to get involved in any trouble in my neighborhood? But this is where Abram was. See, Abram was settled in his land. His father was faithful 
He was comfortable. He had extended family. He had food and all the wealth they needed. And yet God says, go. Be a bridge over which my love will cross and spread to all the families in the world. Bless them. Bring their lives to a place of flourishing. Love the world the way that I love you. I can imagine Abram's family meeting where he breaks the news. I mean, Scripture doesn't tell us anything else, so our imagination might run wild here. Um, Abram, we're going to leave here. We're going to leave our land and all of our resources and our extended family to voluntarily become immigrants and aliens so that we can bless the nations of the world, nations that very likely won't take us in. And this is just to be like out of obedience to God? Yeah. That's what we're doing. And if you read as the story unfolds, Abram, like us, is not perfect. But this is the origin story. This is our origin story. Because Abraham left, we are here. So too we are called. Next door, down the street, to the community park. One commentator put it this way, God's people of Israel were never meant to exist in a vacuum, but out and about in God's world. And who knows, maybe by loving our neighbors in our neighborhoods the same way that God loves us will lessen the trouble in the neighborhood. There's this story about Fred Rogers. One day he finds that his car has been stolen But when he comes back the next day, his car is back with a note on it. And it says, if I had known it was your car, Mr. Rogers, I would not have stolen it. (laughs) There is something to being known that is really important. In the, one of the books I've read in preparing for this, The Art of Neighboring, I highly recommend it, talks about getting us from this place of stranger our neighbors being stranger, to getting to the point of acquaintance. And what follows acquaintance is friendship. This power that comes from being obedient to God's call for us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves is no small thing. Christina Suntorvit's novel, A Wish in the Dark, is set in a fictional city of Chitana, which was ravished by fires decades earlier, burning everything to the ground. And amidst the desolation, the people of Chitana were plunged into literal and figurative darkness. Nothing is left but the burnt skeleton of a city blackened to ash. People have died. There's no food or shelter. And in this newfound poverty, the people scavenge for basic necessities. The once prosperous Chitana is now in chaos. As they wonder how to rebuild, they submit themselves to the leadership and control of a man who bears a magical power to create light without fire. The people are eager to submit themselves to his leadership. No need for fire means no fear of the same catastrophe happening ever again. But instead of distributing this light freely to people, the governor decides that he must first establish order by building two prisons, one for men 
one for women. And to enforce the order of law, people are imprisoned for almost any act of disobedience. And in this population of people living in poverty, struggling to rebuild their lives, most of the prisoners are sent there for petty theft. Every prisoner receives an indelible tattoo on their wrist, marking them for life as someone who has broken the order of law, someone who lives in darkness. And while the governor distributes, well, cells would be a better term for it, his light to the rich, upstanding citizens of Chitana on the west side of the river, the poor on the east side can only afford the dimmest of lights. And the prisoners live in near darkness, gazing across the river at the glittering lights of the city, which seems to flaunt their good fortune. In Nawam, the women's prison, there also live many children. This is because children born to women who are in prison become prisoners themselves until the day they're 13. And because they are prisoners, they too receive that tattoo that marks them for life. And it's in this prison that we meet a nine-year-old orphan boy named Pong. He was born in the prison, and like many of the children there, his mother died in childbirth. Even every night when the darkness sets upon the prison, he gazes out at the lights of Chitana and dreams of the day he will be released. He's heard of the governor. Everyone has. The governor is his hero, the man who brought light to Chitana's darkness. He thinks he and the governor might actually be alike. And as Pong dreams of his future, he imagines that someday he might even work alongside the governor, a partner in doing good works for the people. In fact, as the novel begins, Pong is excitedly anticipating the governor's arrival at the prison. The governor is scheduled a visit, and there is a banquet and a reception planned for him. Pong imagines that the reason for this visit is to make sure that the children of Nawam are being properly cared for, which they are not, and that once the governor sees with his own eyes the conditions that the children are living in, that he'll fix things right away and see that they are treated properly. But when the governor arrives, the children line up and receive a bowl of soup at the meal. Pong gets caught up in a scuffle while defending his sick friend from bullies. Pong is in trouble, and the governor comes to speak with him personally. Pong hopes the governor will have an understanding word of encouragement to offer, but instead the governor whispers in his ear, light shines only on the worthy. Those who are born in darkness always return. After the banquet, Pong is left in shock and disappointed by the governor's words, losing all hope for his future. Could the governor be right? He must be. Having lost all hope for a bright future, after his release, one night, Pong seizes an opportunity to escape in a barrel of trash. He's the only prisoner to ever escape Chitana. And along his escape, he nearly drowns in the river, but is washed ashore, alive in a small neighborhood village. Hungry, he goes searching for food and wanders to the steps of a monastery where he steals a skewer of meat left as an offering for the monks. 
He is disappointed in himself. He had always thought he was a good boy, but now he is an escaped convict and a thief. And unlike his prison escape, this time he gets caught. A woman sees him steal the food and turns him into the monks. Upon hearing what the boy has done, Father Tom, the head of the monastery, steps forward, saying, It's all a misunderstanding. He had given the boy permission to take the food. The woman leaves. And Pong, worried that he'll be turned in once Father Tom knows the truth about him, tells him a lie that he's traveling with his mother and he plans to meet with her downriver. Father Tom sees right through his story, but goes along with it. He tells Pong he's free to go and meet up with his mother, but first, he'd like to give him a blessing. Father Tom pulls out a little box filled with string. He utters a blessing, and ties a string around Pong's wrist. Then he keeps going, offering Pong blessing after blessing, highly specific blessings like, may you never get food poisoning from raw chicken. May wasps never sting your palms of your hands or the bottoms of your feet. By the time Father Chom finishes his blessings, Pong looks down at his wrist now looped with numerous string bracelets, so many that his prison tattoo is no longer visible. Father Chom then says, now that you have received your blessing, you may go along your journey and meet up with your mother. Or, if you prefer, you can stay here at the temple as long as you like. And if any of those bracelets pop off while you're here, we can replace them. And thus begins Pong's story. Father Chom was a bridge of blessing to Pong. By blessing him and seeing him not as a problem to be solved, not as a motherless orphan, not even as a law-breaking criminal from the dark prison, he saw him as a neighbor. He loved him with the love of God. He loved him as he would want to be loved if he were in Pong's shoes. And now Pong has the opportunity to not only be free of his label and be out of prison, but he can flourish. And this all lands right in the heart of the gospel. For God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus to show us the way, to teach us to love, to love us by dying for us and creating a bridge for us between us and God. And now through the work of the Holy Spirit, until Christ comes again, we are the bridge of God's love to the world. We are the bridge of God's love in our neighborhood and to our neighbors. We can be the bridge over troubled waters in our neighborhood by loving them and blessing them that all may flourish.